Now more than ever, we have to take care of our mental health. You might be stuck at home, sheltered in place, but that doesn't mean you can't talk to a professional. Through his work with the military, Dr. Matt Mishkin's career has been focused on delivering mental health care remotely. Step one, don't minimize how you might be feeling. You know, one of the things we're trying to say to people too is, is don't overlook even the small things and don't think you're overreacting. We're, we're in a, we're an unprecedented time. And I think really being aware of how you're feeling and what you're thinking about things right now, even with the littler things, is really important. And we all need to kind of give ourselves and the people around us a little, a little grace and a little break for how we're reacting to things. We'll talk to Dr. Mishkin about telemental health services and how to access them. We'll also spend time talking about his work with the always remarkable veteran community, and we'll touch on the importance of humor even during tough times. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Joining us on the phone today is Dr. Matt Mishkin, Deputy Director of the Johnson Depression Center, part of the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and Executive Director of Operations at the Stephen A. Cohen Military Family Clinic at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. More importantly, he's a telehealth expert, having helped lead telehealth programs for the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, Dr. Mishkin, thank you so much for joining us today while we're all working through this, um, this pandemic together. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And your your history of the Department of Defense is really interesting, which we want to we want to talk about, but really want to start by laying some groundwork about telehealth. So, you're we called you an expert on telehealth. What what really is telehealth, and when is a good time to pursue telehealth versus what you would traditionally think of um, for your for your medical care? Yeah, I appreciate you calling me an expert. I've got some stories on whether you know I am or not, and how I got to that place. <laughs> but um, I'll take the expert. Uh, I'll take the expert connotation for now. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, so telehealth, you know, in general, uh, it's got a, actually a pretty broad definition now. And I really think at its broadest, and I'll get down to a little bit more fine details, is it's really the use of technology to deliver and even receive, you know, health information and healthcare. So with that, you can think about there's an educational component. There's somewhat of a self-help component to it. If you think about, you know, some of the things you can find online, some of the reputable sources online. And then there's clinical services, and that's tends to be where we focus more of our efforts is on that clinical component. So really when it comes down to it, when I talk about that clinical component, I'm thinking about the use of communication technology to deliver healthcare services at either a geographic or a temporal different uh, distance. Sorry about that. Um, that geographic piece is usually a little bit more obvious for people. So it's really delivering services from say one part of the state to another, often using uh, two-way audio-visual connections. Uh, and the literature that's referred to as synchronous telehealth, and you can think about video chat technologies, things like that. Um, the temporal distance sometimes is not as obvious for what I'm talking about with people. And really when we're talking about that temporal distance is if you think about in general telehealth, think about going in and, and needing to get a scan or maybe you have an x-ray um, that needs to be read by a specialist. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times those scans can be sent to somebody else who takes a look at it, reviews it, and then maybe sends a report back. Um, that is known as sort of asynchronous because it's not happening real time. And that's where you're thinking about this, this temporal distance. Mm -hmm. um, 
so both of those I think are really telehealth. But again, most of the research, most of what we're seeing, most of what we'll talk about is that synchronous, that two-way audiovisual uh, connection, typically, you know, at a geographic distance. So really, just we're having all our meetings on Zoom and on FaceTime. Really, you're saying we can do our healthcare the same way, not just our our work meetings. You really can. I mean, there's certain things, you know, if you, if you need to get blood drawn, it's really, it's difficult to do that without going into a clinic. But there's definitely a range of other services, uh, you know, primary care services. There's, there's other sort of um, even connecting with specialists with follow-up services that you can do. Yeah, using Zoom, that's what we use at the University of Colorado. So we have a, you know, HIPAA compliant um, Zoom system. And really HIPAA is, a, is a, an, an ongoing sort of destination. So to say a, um, a piece of technology is HIPAA compliant, it's really how you use it. But we have, um, you know, we've gone through security measures to make sure that, that the Zoom system we're using is, is locked down. Um, but yeah, so you can use that to connect with your primary care provider, other specialists, you know, what we'll talk a lot about is, is getting mental health services via that system. Yeah. So let's, you know, let's pivot to mental health care specifically. So, you know, in my experience, I've gone, I've sat on a couch, just like on TV or in the movies and, you know, you sit in person and work through stuff is, is doing that through video conference as effective? I'd say, you know, most conditions, actually, the research would show that for most mental health concerns um, and actually the, the ongoing practice evidence, not just the research show that telemental health is no less effective than traditional in-person care. So, you know, part of the answer to that for me is I think it's okay to try it anytime. Um, you know, the really only true exclusion criteria for mental health is whether the provider or the patient are willing to participate or not. Um, you know, you might find over time that maybe there's a clinical reason or there are regulatory issues that require in-person services. But for most conditions, there's no reason to not sort of think about telehealth or telemental health. You know, for some other services like primary care, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot that can be done via telehealth. I think some of the research is still developing. There, there's some research out there that, that shows that even using a camera, built-in camera on a smartphone, um, primary care physicians can actually look in somebody's throat and get an okay assessment, um, you know, for what's going on. Again, it, the, the research, uh, you know, I need to caveat that the research is still developing. Sure. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of primary care providers who are saying, you know, what's this guy talking about? So, <laughs> but, you know, if, if you can't get to somebody, it's certainly, in many cases, better than nothing to, right. to be able to do something like that, even for primary care. Um, you know, even if you think about a lot of the nurse lines that primary care um, clinics have, in some ways that's telehealth too, because you're calling somebody, you know, sometimes you're sending them a picture of, hey, this is, this is what I'm looking at right now. You know, we had a, we had a, a, a personal, a family issue where somebody was having this sort of these red splotches on the back of their hands and we couldn't get to the primary care doctor. So we were able to take some pictures, send it over, and then they gave us some recommendations on on what to do. We're trying to find, we're thinking about trying to find silver linings in the whole, in this whole COVID-19 era. And is there a possible silver lining here in that people are going to be, are in a lot of ways going to be forced to get their mental health care from a tele, from a telehealth perspective as opposed to in person? Um, but is it possible that over the long run that ends up helping more people 
take action that might not have previously? Am I, am I, is this a stretch? Am I stretching too far here? No, no, no. I think, um, you know, I think a couple of things are happening right now. So for a long time, what you've seen in the literature and even just anecdotally is that patients have been much more willing to engage in telehealth than providers have. Um, and initial satisfaction among patients tends to be higher with providers. So one of the things we're seeing right now is providers are actually being forced to engage in telehealth services. And by doing that, you know, the other thing that we know is typically when providers start using telehealth, even if there's initial reluctance, after they do a few sessions, that initial reluctance goes away. We hear very often from people who say, oh, wait, yeah, you're right. You know, I, I had this feeling that I was going to be on this computer and I wasn't going to be able to engage or develop rapport. You know, to be honest with you, a few minutes into it, I, I kind of forgot I was on this computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hear that from both patients and providers. So I think the silver lining that we're seeing right now is that we are being forced to use telehealth. Um, you know, the two clinics that, that I run with the University of Colorado, we are all, both clinics are 100% virtual at this point. So we, we had to transition and we, we did some telehealth services before that. We were probably around maybe 15, 20% of all of our services were telehealth. We're now at 100%. Mm-hmm. So everybody's having to adapt to this. Um, and, you know, within the first couple of days, I was talking to one of our providers and he told me that he had at least two patients in the first couple of days say to him, wait, we could have been doing this the entire time. Um, <laughs> right. So I think you're seeing, yeah. So you're seeing people adapt to it. Providers are adapting to it. And really importantly, one of the things we're seeing, which we can talk more about later is, you know, we're starting to see regulatory bodies having to adapt to this as well, because now the things that were sort of in place before that might have prevented some of these services, they're having to change. Now, some of them might be just because of the emergency services and so there are temporary changes, but there's been forced regulatory changes that I think will, will um, you know, potentially lead to longer term changes in the future. So I guess my, my last question on this, on this really general broad topic would be, you know, someone listening is saying, I should, I should look into telehealth. Maybe I'm, I am struggling mentally with being stuck in my house or I've, I've lost my job and I'm really kind of struggling through it. Where's a good place for someone to start to look for these, to look for these services? I know you guys specifically are work with military families, but, um, and we'll talk more about the military specifically in a bit, but just in general, where, where should someone start? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's two or three places to start. So first is if you have a provider talking to your provider and saying, you know, can we transition to telehealth? It may be as simple as that. Um, if you don't have a provider, uh, starting to maybe look at your, you know, your insurance company and see, you know, who's taking your insurance, and also checking with your insurance company to see what they reimburse. So the the field of telehealth and sort of the the broad, you know, canvas across the United States and the territories, each state has their own rules, regulations, and laws. So just because I can do something here in Colorado doesn't mean that you can do something in Texas. Right. Uh, so really, it's sort of understanding, you know, what your insurance company is willing to do and what your provider feels capable and, and willing to do. I would also recommend, and this is not necessarily fun or sort of sexy work for people, but, you know, there's a lot of websites um, out there. There's a lot of uh, advocacy websites. There's a lot of even going to state licensure 
board websites to find out what your local state rules and regulations are. Um, you know, one of the things I say to people is if you do your background research and you know, say, right now there's 40 states that have some sort of telehealth reimbursement law, and a lot of those are parity laws, basically, especially for mental health, saying that you need to, the insurance companies in the state need to pay the same for telehealth as they would pay for inpatient services. If you know that and you talk to your insurance company and they tell you that they're not going to reimburse something, then you know you have a place there to push on your insurance company. Or if you know that you are able to do it or a licensing board is able to do it and you have a provider unwilling to do it, then that gives you a place to have that conversation and potentially to look for another provider. Well, and, and I think, too, it's it's increasingly important as as we don't know how long this is going to go on as we, you know, we, we're talking a little bit about trying to start maybe getting back to a normal world, but whether or not that happens in the next two weeks or two months, no one knows. And um, it can be a, a challenging time for mental health like this. Uh, this is probably a good opportunity to really look in the mirror and say, do I do I need some help? Right. It is. It's a you know, there's there's definitely a lot going on in the world for a lot of people. And a lot of a lot of big things. A lot of folks are, you know, losing jobs, um, or if they haven't lost their job, they're on a furlough, and they may not be getting the same level of pay. And there's a lot of stressors around that. So certainly, this is a time to really pay attention to your emotions and your mood. And I think, you know, one of the things we're trying to say to people too is, is don't overlook even the small things, and don't think you're overreacting. We're we're in a we're in unprecedented time. Um, and I think really being aware of how you're feeling and what you're thinking about things right now, even with the littler things, is really important. And we all need to kind of give ourselves and the people around us a little, a little grace and a little break for how we're reacting to things. Um, you know, I have a, a slight, I guess, a little story. So my wife and I are both fortunate enough to where our jobs are, are fully ongoing, you know, so we haven't had any, any loss in our jobs at all. Right. But we also have three kids who are 14 years old and younger, and they're all in the house. So even for us, you know, we're having to now add to our job this whole concept of, of trying to help our kids out with school. Um, and, you know, living in Colorado in the spring, it was 71 and sunny, and our yard was really dry on uh saturday from sunday to tuesday we got 15 inches of snow and i can tell you that 15 inches of snow in two days you know a lot of times when it's ski season we're so excited about that (laughs) but right now i noticed a huge shift in mood with those 15 inches of snow and i think that's really something you know it sounds minor but it's really something that we all need to pay attention to and that's you know that's so minor compared to what a lot of people are going through but yeah, I think it just shows that we just really need to pay attention to everything, even even the smaller things, and and just be cognizant of it, and give each other grace, and look out for each other. Well, I'm impressed that we're we're you know a few minutes into this interview now, and we have not yet heard from the from the three kids in your house. I've been on a lot of Zoom calls in the past few weeks where you're very aware of the kids in the house. <laughs> yeah, we have we have my wife works actually her job is mostly out of the house anyway. So the, the kids have been well-trained that you know, we tell them one of us has a call or, you know, <clears throat> they're supposed to stay out. But that doesn't mean that it won't happen. So they could still walk in. And usually what you get is 
an interruption and then you know as they're trying to apologize the interruption just gets worse rather than just <laughs> leaving right <laughs> right the apology just gets even louder and louder and then they think well i did it once i'll just do it again so. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about your your background. So you you got into telehealth, like this became a, a major a, a major part of your career with the uh, Department of Defense. Can you talk more about how this came about and where where you really got going on this? Yeah, um, I can. So you know, part of it I was thinking about this is is actually so my interest in you know being a part of sort of the Department of Defense, the military family. I think started when I was really young. I actually had my first birthday in Thailand during the Vietnam War. My dad was a, a physician in the Air Force, and my mom and my brother and I were all over there living on the economy. And mm-hmm. so periodically, we'd have to leave, and we'd typically go to Cambodia to get a passport, our passports, um, you know, stamped, and come back in. And then we came back to Wright Patterson in Dayton, where my grandpa actually worked too as a as a career civil servant. He was an aeronautical engineer. And so that kind of started sort of my, my overall interest, I think, looking back on it, um, you know, too young to really remember it. But looking back on things, I think that kind of got me interested in, um, in the military. And, you know, we see a lot of people who have these kind of generational interests. Um, my wife and I met in graduate school, and then she decided to do her internship with the Air Force and was initially stationed at Andrews Air Force Base. And so right around that time, I started working at the original Walter Reed in the, a group called Deployment Health Clinical Center. Um, I, I wasn't doing real telehealth work then, but I was starting to, to look into technology. Um, and I think my actual title was the informatics officer there, which even to this day, I'm, I'm not totally sure what that meant. But uh, we, you know, I started to do more with technology. And then... Um, I left there and did some consulting work and then started to really miss kind of the mission and the camaraderie of being part of something bigger again. Mm-hmm. So my wife uh, had a former colleague and he was working out at Madigan Army Medical Center, um, which is on Fort Lewis, which is now Joint Base Lewis-McChord. So I initially took a job as a research psychologist there. And then a little less than a year into it, this would be 2007-ish, there was a new organization that started up called the Defense Centers of Excellence for Psychological Health and Traumatic Brain Injury. And my boss, who was an Army colonel at the time, he was asked to start up a group called the National Center for Telehealth and Technology, otherwise known as T2. Mm -hmm. But I and a a few other folks were asked to help start up this new center. Um, And that that really kind of got me back into the telehealth and technology piece. And I had a, a number of different roles. And then several months into it, this this kind of lead for telehealth programs, we, we didn't have somebody leading that. And so I went to my boss and said, well, I'll give this a shot until um, somebody else can come on and take over. And so I was really said, okay. So I was really thrust into having to figure out um, telehealth and connecting with people. And it was really a, 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 a crash course for me and what it meant to do telehealth. Um, and that was, I mean, that was huge for me because I got to access just all these different experts in telehealth. I got to go and meet with a whole bunch of different people and kind of joking around where I said, you know, thanks for calling me an expert, right? I had to sort of, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a pretending like I was an expert a lot of the time um, until I was really comfortable and, and figured a lot of this stuff out. So 
that kind of led to, yeah, that, that led to a lot of what I was able to do. And then really we were able to do some really interesting and innovative work as part of the Department of Defense. Um, I'll stop there because I know I'm starting to meander a little bit, but you, no, you, can, you can rein me back in on my story. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. We, I'll listen back later, and if it got boring, then I'll just cut parts out. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you mentioned something in there that I, I think is is a core to what is difficult about transition for a lot of veterans is that you know you were looking to be a part of something bigger, and our military service members are always are a part of something bigger, and and I th- and as they transitioned out of the military, you know, I'm not a military person myself, but the stories we hear that is that that's one of the things that you're, that you're missing is that you're, you're missing being part of something bigger. So how, how much does that play into the mental health of, of transitioning vets? And, um, you know, how can, how can they use these mental health services to help with some of that? Yeah, I think that it's, I think it's huge. Um, and I think that's huge for whether you've done, you know, four years, whether you've done 30 years, you know, if you retire out, if you transition out. Um, I like to say to people, and, and there might be people who disagree with me, but I like to differentiate between military culture and veteran culture, such to the extent that I'm not even sure there's anything called veteran culture. You know, I think when, when anybody's in the military and they transition out, again, whether that's four years, 30 years, whatever it might be they have a sense of being a part of the military and they really attach to that military culture, that way of living, that way of being that I don't think, you know, when people talk, talk about veterans, they don't see themselves. I don't think oftentimes as I'm a veteran, they see themselves as I was in the military and now I'm not, but they attach to that military culture piece. Um, So, you know, so you'll see a lot of that where somebody has this ongoing career and then they transition out. And a lot of times people are now like, oh, you're a veteran, um, which is a positive and also a negative, depending on how you say it or how somebody takes it. I think you also see that from, you know, family members. And, and they're often ones who are probably a little bit more lost in the situation, too. You have spouses who have moved around with the military member. You even have kids, you know, who are in multiple schools, moved around a lot. And that's a really a big piece of their identity. Sure. Um, but then it's, it's, it's not right. And suddenly now you're like, oh, oh, your dad was a, your dad was in the military. Oh, whatever, you know, but for a lot of kids, that that's a, that's a significant part of their life and something they really attach to. I mean, that was the first thing when we asked about your background, the first thing you said is that you were, you know, you were from a military family. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really something, you know, when you look back on it, you, you know, a lot of people take a lot of pride in that and. I think it's appropriate as a society that we give a lot of kudos to the person in uniform. Uh, I think as a society, we could actually give more kudos to the people who are supporting those in uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think, I don't think we do enough for the family members and that's, that's broad based family members. Cause you know, a lot of people, um, you know, they might consider say a best friend to be really part of their family member, or it's not, a, you know, it's not a parent, it's an aunt, an uncle, it's, it's a grandparent, somebody like that. And I don't think we give enough credit to the folks who are supporting those in uniform. Um, so that's getting, you know, a little off. You know, if you look at sort of the other end of the spectrum, if say you have, you know, an 18 year old who joins and does four years and maybe they were deployed and, and really had some really significant responsibilities during their time. And then they, they get out and then maybe they decide to go back to college. 
now they're a little bit older, maybe they're 22, you know, 24 year old freshmen. If you, if you think about the experiences that they had in those four years compared to other college students, it's incredibly different, right? And they're going to feel a lot of times out of place. Um, so I think you see a lot of, a lot of identity issues with the transitions and then also sort of this lack of understanding from other people about what somebody in the military went through and, and what they had to do during the time they were in there and giving really real credit for that. Right. Right. Is, is thinking about, you know, a 19 year old who was asked to, you know, provide security um, in a, in a deployed, you know, in a war zone or a 20 year old who was asked to, you know, account for millions and millions of dollars of equipment, right? Your average 18, 19, 20 year old is not having to do those things. Right. And so when somebody transitions out and, and that part of their identity maybe isn't recognized, you definitely see a, you, you see some struggles there. You definitely see some struggles. Well, and that comes back though to why, you know, we always say that it's great to hire to hire a vet and the responsibility that you have beyond the equipment is, and the lives of the, of the man and or woman standing next to you, um, is it, it, it's difficult to translate into words what that means. But when you see it in action, you're like, Oh, that is, that is an asset that we want to have on our team. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you talk about the brotherhood and the sisterhood and just that family connection. And you also know that, you know, veterans and folks, you know, even spouses, folks in that broader military family community are more uh, more likely to be volunteers, right? They're more likely to give back. They're more likely to do certain things. And really being able to to tap into that, I think, is, is I wouldn't say it's an art. It, it's just you have to kind of understand, you know, where somebody is coming from and understand the importance of that background and not just exactly what they did, but how that background has influenced their belief and, you know, being a part of something and their, their belief and, you know, giving to others and being a part of a team. Um, you know, I, I think that's something we need to pay attention to. We had a, a, a neighbor of ours, um, their son uh, joined the Marines and, I'm, and, and they didn't have really a lot of military in their family. And I remember saying to her, like, you know, it'll be interesting because, as soon as you mention that your son is a Marine, people are going to come out of the woodworks, you know, supporting you and saying, oh, I was, you know, I'm a Marine or, or this or that. And, you know, she said uh, a few months later, we were talking. She's like, you know, you're totally right. Like just just by mentioning my son is a Marine and, they, you know, they've got a bumper sticker on their car. She's like the number of people who just come up to her and say things to her. And it's like this instant, this instant family. Right. Just just mentioning that your son is in in the Marines brings in this infant family. And I think that's stuff that, that we really need to think about and, and be able to tap into a lot better. You know, wandering back to, to telehealth, what is the, the landscape of that right now for the, for the veteran community? Like, and talk about the work at the Cohen Clinic a little bit too there. The VA has really done a ton with telehealth and they really are, um, you know, on the cutting edge of a lot of telehealth services. Um, you know, obviously I think in general for mental health, especially, across the board and this is not this is not a, a knock on the VA this is across the board you know we just don't really have enough mental health providers to meet all of our demand in general mm-hmm. um, so that's always that's always a concern um, I, I think you know I think for veterans um, you know the telehealth certainly is 
a viable option for a lot of different systems. Um, you know, the Cohen Clinic, you know, one of the things that, uh, well, the Cohen Network in general, you know, access to care at the Cohen Network is, is one of the primary reasons that we exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what Cohen, what the network is really wanting to do is reduce any of the traditional barriers that we know for telehealth. One of them is, you know, payment barriers, um, transportation barriers, child care barriers, all the things that would say to somebody, well, I can't go get mental health services because of this. Telehealth comes in as another way to reduce those access barriers. So, you know, here I'll use Colorado for an example. You know, we've got Denver, we've got Colorado Springs, we have some uh, uh, some bigger cities, and then we have vast areas of of the plains and then the mountain communities where we just don't have as many providers. And people oftentimes have have trouble getting to places. You know, I, I joked around earlier about the 15 inches of snow that we got in the middle of April or, you know, beginning of April. Right. Um, but that can really impact people's travel. Yeah. So the ability to allow somebody to have telehealth services out of their house, I mean, that's a huge access issue that, that gives them complete access to mental health services. So I think that the Cohen Clinic, it truly is, you know, being able to reduce those barriers and provide as much access in as many ways as possible. Well, and, you know, that commitment to reducing barriers is one of the reasons that the Cohen Clinic um, is a part of the Bush Institute's Warrior Wellness Alliance, which, um, you know, we're we're committed to making sure that veterans are able to receive high quality mental health care and, and reducing those barriers. We've got a pilot going right now where um, in Houston, uh, Colorado, and in Central Florida, um, we're working on our Warrior Wellness Alliance connector hotline where you can reach this hotline and then quickly get connected to mental health care, not in a crisis situation, but Hey, I've got, I know a guy or I've got a friend that needs some help. And, um, you can learn more about that at www.bushcenter.org slash WWA. And, um, you know, we first off, we want to say thanks for being a part of that, of the warrior wellness Alliance. Yeah, no. And, you know, we appreciate being a part of it too. And, and maybe to give an extra plug for the Alliance, you know, it's, it's, you're working with uh, entities that, that you all have vetted too. So, you know, a lot of times I think there's, you know, you hear these numbers that there's, you know, 40,000, 50,000 sort of, you know, nonprofits or organizations out there that are set up to treat veterans. It can become an overwhelming landscape for people. Um, and in mental health care, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll find somebody who says, oh, I, you know, I, I take TRICARE, right? Um, therefore, I serve veterans. But Really, that's a pretty limited. That's a pretty limited uh, number of people, and and just because somebody takes that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got sort of some of the training and the background and use the evidence based practices a lot of people are looking for. So I know part of the alliance is is not just connecting to all these entities; it's connecting to high quality and vetted services. So in our case, it's you know, a, an organization that focuses on providing military, culturally competent and evidence-based uh, mental health services. We've still got, we've still got issues to iron out. Like, you know, you mentioned some of the challenges include some of the regulatory issues um, that actually where you can't necessarily cross state lines, or it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of when we first started seeing Uber and Lyft really take off is that then suddenly the regulations that were in place didn't 
keep up with the technology and that we had um, this service that people wanted and that people wanted to use, but, but there were regulations in place that said, well, you know, um, this is really a taxi service, which has to have, you know, X, Y, and Z regulations met. Um, do you think that this COVID crisis might help us break through some of those regulatory issues um, in the, in the mental health and telehealth space? You know, we're, we're hoping it does. Um, and we've seen some changes at least on a temporary basis, we've now seen at least temporary changes for Medicare that has removed that geographic distinction and also is allowing for in-home services. So I say temporary, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with that, but I think at least with that lifting of the regulations right now, it's almost like you've got real-time uh, use case scenarios happening to say, okay, well, we were able to do it right so and we're able to do it safely and effectively um understand that it's a temporary restriction but maybe that starts to build the case for moving forward with more permanent uh lifting of these restrictions and now we have data here's data to back it up and you've seen some uh some governors who have passed you know temporary sort of law restrictions or lifting of restrictions on um, having to have a license in a, in a specific state. It's not across the board right now. And there's still, <clears throat> there's still issues. It's not just, oh, now, you know, you, you can practice in this state with your own license and just go ahead and do it. There's still restrictions to it. But the fact that people are starting to look at that um, and are probably going to start building some use cases there, I don't know that we'll see a national license anytime soon, but you'll probably start to see more conversations about what it would mean to open up um, some cross-state licensure uh, restrictions, things like that. Right. Well, we've, uh, we've gone over on time a little bit, so I've got, to, I've got to ask you the one last question, though, that we always ask our guests before they leave, um, which is, yeah, we're, we're, I'll try and stump you on it. So you know, I've got an idea of what you can answer if you do, if you do need help. Um, is, so uh, what are we not talking enough about as a nation that we should be talking about? Yeah, I assume we're, I assume we're focused on telehealth here. We're not getting into other things. You could, uh, you, you can answer it actually any way that this is this is your forum now. You can you can talk about bicycling if that's your if that's your cup of tea. We're we're wide open. Huh. Well, yeah, maybe we, I mean we should do more bicycling. I think that would be good for us as a country. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, sticking to the theme of the conversation and and really what we we're just talking about. I think we really need to be talking more about um, you know what we're doing with mental health services in general. In the, in the country, um, you know, pe- people often talk about stigma with mental health services. Um, I, I steer away from stigma a little bit because I think I think we've done an OK job with stigma. I don't think people feel as stigmatized now talking about sort of depression, anxiety. I'm not saying that it's gone by any means, but I, I think we've reduced that. I think the big issue now that we face is when somebody wants to go get services, you know, we don't we don't have enough qualified providers right now. Um, and for the qualified providers that we do have, for people taking insurance, insurance is not reimbursed very well. It's very difficult for somebody, you know, to make a living off of insurance. So a lot of times you go to a private practitioner. It's not that the person doesn't want to take insurance. It's that, you know, a lot of insurance just doesn't reimburse very well. And so um, there's, there's some folks who have talked about it's really a, dis- a discrimination against mental health services, right? And why do we, why do insurance companies pay so little for it? 
And, you know, why do we as a society not, um, not kind of force for better payments for mental health care or force for, you know, better, um, better policies around getting services? Because that's something else you'll run into as well is somebody wanting to get services and they look into, they look into what insurance provides for and like, you know, it's maybe a few sessions or they can see this type of provider, but they can't see that type of, of a provider. Right. And it gets very confusing for everybody. So I, I think that's something that we really need to start talking, you know, a lot more about is, is how we're treating our mental health system, how we re- reimburse for it and what we're doing to bring more and more people into uh, mental health as a profession, right. And showing that, that you can have a very viable career as a mental health professional. Right. Well, yeah, that's interesting what you say about the stigma too, because I know just in my in my personal circles, it used to be people be like, "Oh, I have a I have a doctor appointment. I'm I'm not going to be able to be there." And now people are much more comfortable, from what I've seen, saying, "Oh, I've got a I've got an appointment with my therapist," um, and it's it's just, yeah, of course you do. We we all should. Um, and then, like you said, that's that's a positive for sure. Yeah, no, it's a positive. I mean, it's it, it's great that people are doing that, and it's great that you know we're starting to be more and more accepting of it. And, and I think for a lot of times it's, you know, nobody thinks twice about, you know, going in for, um, you know, an annual checkup with your primary care doctor. Um, you know, we, we should have the same ability to do that with a mental health provider, even if you're not getting ongoing services, you know, going in once or twice a year, just for checkup, seeing if there's anything that you need and really treating that, um, as, you know, as part of the system, right. As part of what, what we, what we get. And, you know, it's really just, it's, it's a, it's a covered service and people do it right. It, it would help all of us out. And you know what I was, um, what I was going to steer you toward, if you were stumped, we were talking before we hit record here, um, just a few minutes ago, we were talking a little bit about humor and, um, you know, we were talking, is it okay to be funny right now in this, in this kind of, in this era? Actually, one of the things that we do need to remind people is it's okay to have fun and be funny. And just because you're using humor does not mean you're making light of anybody's situation. It's actually a very healthy way uh, for people to cope and, and to get through things. And that'll explain my my Instagram feed, which now is almost exclusively scenes from homeschooling and then meme after meme after meme of uh, of how we're all reacting to the, to the COVID-19 crisis. So many memes. Some of them go, you know, you're like, okay, that one was a little far, right? <laughs> right, but, right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, to joke around and to, to remember that that life is actually full of, you know, potential happiness and joy. And just because we're in crappy situations right now, uh, doesn't mean that we have to give up on on joy and happiness. Well said, well said. Well, Dr. Mishkin, thank you so much for spending the time with us. This was, I think, really interesting and an important topic right now as we I'll work through this together. And so once again, really thank you for taking the time to do it. Yeah, no problem. And, and sorry if I gave you a lot of editing work in there. So, uh, no, I think the real work I, comes I from myself. I, I think I'm my own worst enemy on the editing front. No, I, well, I, I talked a lot more. So, <laughs> uh, no, I appreciate it. This is, uh, it was a good conversation. And, you know, if, if you want, you can throw out a, I've got a couple dad jokes for you. If you want some humor to add to it too. Well, yeah, we were just talking about humor. Let's, I don't know what that has to do with dad jokes, but <laughs> see what I did there? Let's try it. All right, I'll give you, let me think of two of them. So we'll go with healthcare, right? So what kind of doctor is Dr. Pepper actually? Uh, I don't know. 
a physician. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this one you got to think about too. So, um, you know, I, I was thinking about telling you a time traveler joke, but you didn't like it. <laughs> that took me a second. I was like, no, yeah. I would love that joke. Tell yeah. me that. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. There it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now you got to think about that one. Right? Now we're yeah. definitely yeah. going to let you go. Now, now you've worn out your welcome. All right, now, now I'm done. Right? I was just shutting me off. <laughs> Dr. Mishkin, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. All right, thanks. I appreciate it. It's it a fun conversation. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right, thanks a lot. Talk to you later. We welcome veterans in Houston, Denver, and Central Florida to be a part of the Warrior Wellness Alliance pilot program. Connect quickly with an advocate who has been specially trained in how to efficiently connect veterans with high-quality mental health care. Learn more at www.bushcenter.org slash WWA. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.